Hello, welcome to Deep Overstock Fiction Podcast, where we invite a writer published in the Deep Overstock Literary Journal to read and discuss a piece from our archives. Yes, this is the exact structure as the New York Fiction Podcast. Thank you, Deborah Treesman. I'm your host, Michael Santiago, and this week we have John Crosstech on the show, reading a story published in the Structures issue of March 2020, Chrysalis by Amanda Debershman. She took a puff from her cigar. It's like the way trees grow. I added, thinking of the shadows of the branches. Would you like to hear a saying that I know? She asked. I nodded. Again, she snapped her fingers, and the tree behind her burst into flames. This story was chosen by John Crosstech, who has published stories in the horror, structures, and new arrival issues of Deep Overstock. John Crosstech has also published stories in Exus, Northwest Press, Artemis, and River Heron Review. She received a Pushcart nomination for his self-published book, Room Rooms, was recently released, and he's on track to get published in Taco Bell Quarterly's Issue 4, which is due in December. He loves writing science fiction and hard to cope with today's dark world. So here we go. Thank you for coming on the show, John. Uh, thanks for having me. Great, John. So you read Amanda... Depperschmidt's story, Chrysalis. Why this story in particular? Uh, well, uh, I'm a big fan of Amanda's writing, and I really love Chrysalis in uh, specific as this really tender and haunted look at the nightmare of labor in the face of climate extinction. Uh, and it, it just really stands out to me, and I was excited to read it. So what really spoke to you in this piece? Uh, the things that really speak to me the most in this piece, I would definitely say the subtle humor of it, uh, the subtle grim humor is definitely something that really I always come back to. Uh, I really love the, like, the dream space imagery of it. Um, I love that the, the stories that the master tells the preservationist, uh, it has so much to say about the way that we are like rewritten to serve capitalism and anything but our own individual self-interest. Perfect explanation. I totally agree. I also found her writing style very intriguing. It spoke to me on a multitude of levels. Um, it all seemed rather poetic, too, as she put such vivid imagery in my mind in terms of the house. And what was it about Amanda's style in particular that, that you enjoyed the most? Uh, well, for me, Amanda's imagery is always very ornate without being overly showy. Um, and as a writer, I find myself struggling all the time outside of like the concrete realms of like action and dialogue for too long. But Amanda's style really does wonders with like the interior, it, the interior internal reality of her characters. And the preservationist is just such a stellar example of what it means to be inside a character who it doesn't get a chance to you know, affect too much like direct action, but has to internalize and figure everything out as, as a reactive agent. Absolutely. Totally agree. Okay. So here's John Crosstick reading Chrysalis by Amanda Depperschmidt. Chrysalis by Amanda Depperschmidt. Each time I pass through the gate, I forget. I forget about the rusty nail and it pricks my palm in the same spot over and over, right hand, the bottom left mound of my palm, just above the wrist. The nail on the gate is rusted and twisted. Changing it would be a simple fix, with a problem not that I was always forgetting about it. Pass through the gate, descend upon the property, 
and suddenly it becomes difficult to remember anything at all. The soil here is rich and dark, and between a live oak tree and a small group of palms sits a narrow but tall late Victorian home. The branches of the oak roll and intertwine as silhouettes against the side of the house, a shadowy flux upon the decaying red siding. I have no memory of first arriving at this place, and hardly a memory outside of it. A memory, like a house or a tree, should have a foundation, roots, a trunk. And yet for me there are only the idle days spent here, maintaining the home, exploring its rooms, and stopping for a snack in the garden. I am the property's personal preservationist. It is idyllic, but difficult work, for between the cracks and the holes in the walls the house is spilling with moss, mold, and fungus, which spread out and infect the framework. Just as Queen Victoria passed a blood mutation off to European royalty around the world, the houses built under her reign and in her name would come to suffer a similar kind of hemorrhaging. Though I live with the property, I am not its owner. I am merely keeping up its appearance for my boss. The only reason she allows me away from the property is so that I may meet with her and report to her on how the house is doing. It is rare that she calls for me, though lately her invitations have become more frequent. The last time I saw her, I was invited to dine with her in the gardens of her corporate office. She had her attendant come, pick me up from the house, and take me straight to her building. She was sitting on a golden chair as her workers waved fronds above her head to keep her shaded. She's of a petite frame, but at times can seem like a giantess. Sprawled out at her feet, a naked body lay face down on a log, and from the bare back she snacked on caviar, rare fish, and peeled mandarins. I would like to see that shabby dump turned into a beautiful garden, like the one Eve lived in before God sent her away, she said. Her eyes were black, always pitch black, and she always kept a smirk which had any hint of discomfort or disagreement. Her attendant kneeled at her side and presented a turquoise box. She waved it open and pulled out two cigars, which she lit with a snap of her fingers and handed to me. Now, tell me something interesting. I bristled, and her eyes narrowed in on me. I thought of something to say, but for a moment was sure that I had told her once before. I hesitated, but spoke anyway against my better judgment. Alice is architecture. Everything is architecture, and everyone an architect. She cackled. So you think yourself an architect, or rather a poet? It's just a saying, ma'am. It means that everything is built up from something, and that everyone facilitates that growth. She took a puff from her cigar. It's like the way trees grow, I added, thinking of the shadows of the branches. Would you like to hear a saying that I know, she asked. I nodded. Again, she snapped her fingers, and the tree behind her burst into flames. Fire is blood, and blood is wood. Fire makes the blood rush, which turns humans into fine, hard wood. I blushed. From you, I want only the finest wood. She laughed again. And don't call me ma'am. Call me master. That night, I refused sleep and spent the night instead carving arabesques into the crown molding of the home. It's strange how memory works. How sometimes you can remember the ways of the world while forgetting your own experiences. I think about this while repairing squeaky faucets and scraping at bathroom tiles. Recollecting a feeling, preserved in a moment, causes a reaction within the gut. 
In the bathroom, mold covers the walls and the ceiling. I brush it, wash it, even occasionally find myself conversing and laughing with it. I have heard of others who stiffen at the sight of mold, stricken with fear at the mere form of it. It is as if the gut already knows all about the horrors of nature, the destiny of the body to be devoured and disintegrated, even if the brain is able to recognize it as momentarily harmless. The gut houses a second kind of memory. The master's attendant waits outside for me. She has invited me to her private room. When I arrive, she sits me down on her shay and recounts a story from her past, the first she has ever shared with me. It's a story of how she was expelled from college after jealously setting fire to her younger sister's knitting club. She tells me about how she angrily grabbed at the scissors, how her hair fell into her face, how she felt at that moment something else was taking over her soul. There's no reason for her to tell me this. She excuses me as soon as her story is over. No explanation for why she shared it. No explanation as to why such an event would happen. When I return home, the kitchen is on fire. I pull out a fire extinguisher from the closet, casting foam upon the flames until I can identify the source. A teapot left boiling on the stove during my visit to the master's room. I open the windows and allow the smoke to dissipate. It takes three hours for the room to clear and the kitchen is left black. The appliance is melted. The only thing that has survived the fire is the moss growing between the tiles on the floor. I have read in a book from the house's library that when an untrained medium or a psychic leaves their mind open to spirits, occasionally an animal presence can take over the mind in order to play tricks on humans. In the silence of the charred house, I am able to give my thoughts to vessels, to the prophets, to Shiva, the god of destruction, riding on the faithful bull Nandi's back. Was I too just a pet to a destructive god? What could be the point to this job of merely slowing the inevitable processes of decay? I leave the house and kneel in the garden, reaching my arms out in front of me to stretch the notches of my spine. I lay there for four hours until rain begins to pour down, and then I lay there for another two hours. The next morning I have a recollection, my first memory. I remember being a kid and collecting caterpillars in an open terrarium for observation as they transformed into butterflies. I must have watched them for days or possibly weeks, but in one afternoon of inattentiveness, I left the terrarium outside and uncovered after going back inside to play. I forgot about the terrarium and left it outside and uncovered overnight when it happened to rain. The next morning when I went, to went out to check on the caterpillars, the terrarium had filled with water and the bodies of the caterpillars floated, bloated in the brown water. The boy next door slapped me across the face at the sight of it, knocked me down, and kicked me in the stomach as I cried. I do not know how to repair a burnt kitchen. As far as I can remember, my job has only been one of conservancy. I have not been able to create or fix things anew, except for the occasional leaky faucet or hole in the ceiling. When there is no turnaround, no hope for salvation, it is the heart that loses out to anguish and apathy. I have no choice but to visit my master again in her room, my first time seeing her at my own behest. I find her lounging on the shade this time, puffing a cigarette and looking out her window at the buildings below, buildings that she herself had designed and seen built, the landscape practically one of her own terraforming. I tell her what I have done, and she says nothing, just allows me to weep in her lap. She strokes my hair with her cigarette hand, the ashes falling against the back of my neck. Would you like to hear another story, she asked me, and I nod into her thigh. 
She tells me about the time she went big game hunting in the African savannah with a group of prominent investors and moguls. Wanting to impress them, she went after the biggest game she could fathom, a lion, proud and reclining, still growing into his long red mane. She stalked the lion all the way over to a large rock where it sprawled out in the sunlight. She watched it yawn, took a deep breath, and shot it right between its eyes. As she watched the blood trickle down its stout, she walked over to it, embraced it, and sobbed into its fur. Sometimes things fall apart, rot, and die, she explained to me, as if speaking to a child. But if the lion had lived, I wouldn't have my favorite, warmest, and softest coat. The sun had set, but neither of us got up to turn out a light. The master put the cigarette up to her lips for an inhale, but instead dropped her wrist down to the ashray to extinguish the flame. Returning that night, I prick my finger on the gate as usual. The hole the nail has created in my palm is turning black with infection. Tetanus. I feel my throat close up. Once again, I lie awake through the night. The bed on the second floor is canopied with mosquito netting, and as I toss on the mattress, the net wraps up around me, tightening with each thrash. The scientific community once thought Chernobyl would be uninhabitable for centuries. Now it is home to one of the most ecologically diverse populations on the planet. When creatures die at Chernobyl, there's no mold or fungi to break down their bodies. Instead, their corpses are left perfectly intact, immaculately preserved. If I could stand up on my tiptoes, I could brush the moss in the corners of the ceiling. There's no stopping it or holding it back. The mold is the owner of the house, and I am just a guest within it. The next night, the master again invites me back to her room, but I am too weak to meet her. I am forced to turn her down, and her attendant arrives to leave behind a gift, a preserved jungle ant with a parasitic plant pushing out and blossoming from a crack in its skull. Its exoskeleton is covered in plant-like fur that is pushed through the shell of its body. It's beautiful. Colorful, like a small fountain. I weakly bring it back to the library and place it on a coffee table. I am the ant. I understand why it was given to me. I open the small note attached at its base, which reads, Don't call me your master. I am your owner. The ant and I are the gatekeepers, stuck between life and death, both caring for bodies neither of us actually own. I spend the last day on my own in the library. I replay my only memory over and over in my head. The mold and the moss creep through the cracks in the walls like the caterpillars. They have all come out to watch. If I cannot keep the house preserved, how will its memories continue? What of my own memories, the memories of my owner? And who's keeping the memories of the earth while I am cleaning mold and repairing pipes? I see colors and believe it to be death. I see the wildness and the decomposers spread out and replace us on the land. I believe it to be death until she comes to me, not death, but my owner, to carry me out to the garden. She lays me down against the brick foundation while she waters the flowers. There are tears rolling down her cheeks, and I ask her if she's crying because of me. She says no, she's not crying because of me. She's crying because of something she remembered just then. This is the first time I see her in the house, and she's beautiful here, and the house is perfect with her in it. 
The shadow branches arabesque down her back and arms like tattoos. Empty and abandoned cicada shells cling to the stone ornaments and tree trunks. I watch her noticing something, and she sets her watering can down and kneels to be closer to the ground. She brings her palm down to the dirt and allows a small garden snake to twist around her wrist. She coos at it, strokes it, and winds it around her as I feel my own spine coiling. I am having a dream where all the continents are twisted around my owner's wrists. In the ocean, everyone is standing on each other's shoulders. Everyone is there and we are all building a tower. I am the last one left. The tower is stretching into the heavens. I climb up the backs of everyone, their faces laughing and familiar. When I reach the top, I sit atop the second to last person's shoulders. I reach my hands up to the sky and feel hands and wrists, streaked with soot, reaching back for me. I laugh because we have done it at last. We have rebuilt the spine. So... Great reading, John. Now back to the style of the piece. Your style lended itself well to the, to the theme of the journal, which was structures after all. Yeah, um, I think it actually did a really fantastic job of addressing the core theme. Um, uh, so much of the story is like a meditation on the full concept of structures. There's the house itself, of course, which is this physical structure. But then there's the structure of capitalism, the artifice of it, the way that people are you know, structured to do tasks and work against their own self-interest, as I said before. Um, but most compellingly, and I think that a lot of the imagery comes out of this, is like the study of organic structures. So there's the through line of the moss throughout the whole story and how it overwrites the house, how it overwrites the ant, which is one of the images that really stands out to me. Um, and it all kind of culminates in the end with that, like, really unique ending with the the Babel tower of humans sitting on each other's shoulder and forming that spine reaching out to space. It's like the body is structure. It's humanity as a body. It's like the superstructure of society. And I think that it, it all kind of is written towards the idea of structures and all the different ways of structures rather than just the, the straightforward house that is the centerpiece of the story. Um, so I think it really does lend itself to that theme. And I think that what Deep Overstock's, you know, focus on theme allows writers like Amanda to like really kind of explore these, like these ideas, uh, and it, you know, creates for some really interesting reading. Do you see this as a, as a standalone piece or would you be interested in reading more from maybe this story if it was a part of another or a sequel piece, prequel piece? Uh, I definitely think it's very standalone. Um, you know, while I, I definitely have a lot of questions and curiosity about the details and characters and stuff, I definitely think that it's it's meant to be exactly what it is um, and leave you wondering and questioning, but just to think more about the ideas rather than needing the story itself to continue. But I, of course, would love to read stories in this mode, like a short story collection um, uh, in like a similar voice. But I think that it was... It was written for what it is, and I think it's very strong for what it is. So I'm very pleased with it as, as it is. Yeah, absolutely, I agree. Yeah, it definitely works as a standalone piece, and it would be interesting to see if Amanda can pull together from her creative mind all these different short pieces that are so involved and heavily focused on, on our themes that we present in Deep Overstock. 
So I absolutely agree with that. Um, I mentioned earlier, though, the story painted broad strokes, yet very vivid imageries of this house. And for me personally, the house and the moss itself felt like a character on its own. Um, did you get the sense, too, that these various structures become characters in themselves for you? Or were you mostly centered on the girl in the story? Oh, no, I, I totally agree with you. The house is a character on its own, for sure. I mean, the the whole uh, paragraph in the talking about the, how Victorian houses are uh, these, like, remnants of the Victorian age and Victoria herself, and talking about how uh, just, like, Victoria herself and her blood mutation passed on through royalty, how these houses have a, this own kind of internal hemorrhaging. It's like the house becomes this kind of its own metaphor for like colonialism and the inevitable collapse of colonialism. Um, but then there's also just the unique like imagery of like the, the siding and the pieces of the house and the way that they're falling apart. It's so distinct and visual that it grounds you even as the story kind of flies and floats about. Um, and yeah, it's just, it commands so much attention that I think it really does stand as its own character alongside, obviously, the preservationist. Yes, yes, very interesting points, actually. That brings me to my next question. So there's a line that really struck me. It was, it was powerful and, for me, totally unexpected. But once again, back to the, the, the vivid imagery, she was excellent weaving all these different, I feel like there were sub-narratives, but she didn't have to look too deep. For example, she writes... To the prophets, to Shiva, the god of destruction, riding on the faithful bull Nandi's back. That was a great line. And after that, she had written, was she a pet to the god? So she, there was a lot of curiosity there. And then it goes back to decay. So all these carefully interwoven threads in the story were really compelling. What did you take away from the lines about Shiva, for example? What was your interpretation of that? Oh, yeah, I, that definitely stands out a lot to me in my reading. Um, one of the things I really love about that is how it represents the larger arc of the relationship between the the master owner and the preservationist. And I think that it like at this point in the story, the preservationist's psyche has been so utterly corrupted by the master's control that essentially uh, she's kind of slipped into this cult-like uh like view of the master um so you know she's no longer questioning her she's no, she's no longer like actively consciously doubting her so just like how all cultists as like a defense mechanism will justify any flaw in their leader by like ascribing meaning to it you know like <laughs> similarly in our current news you have like trump fans talking about how they think he's sent by god it's the preservationist is looking at the master and she's seeing her in like this like goddess of destruction this shivaistic way and she's like so am i a pet so she's basically like codifying her subservience to the master in this like mythic imagery um and just like whatever is like available to her in this very like animalistic natural way and i it, it really does stand out and it says so much about the abusive relationship between the preservationist and the master and also about how she is trying to explain to herself this like decay as a form of like 
divine destruction that's inevitable and must happen. Um, so yeah, I mean that that line really does it. Like you said, it's like a whole sub narrative. It just like pockets, and then the longer you think about it, the more it just kind of pops open. Yeah, I had to read this story I think about three times to. It's like watching the movie Inception. I feel like, I mean, you you have to be able to dig deeper than the surface, and you can't get that with just one read. You have to, like, I had to read it for sure. times. Um, but I felt like she wrote every line with, with intention. It's interesting you drew a parallel with, with Trump. You know, Trump, who knows, maybe Trump could be uh, sort of like Shiva. Maybe he's the god of destruction. So that you drew there um <laughs> yeah so and i guess last but not least what was your biggest takeaway from from chrysalis uh you know for me i would say the biggest takeaway is that is that state of mind that the character goes through that like halfway place between the structures we build and the natural universe and like we try our hardest to like destroy any trace of like the natural world trying to reclaim or reassert its its own primal architecture but it's inevitable and as human beings we're like ourselves part of that design no matter how much we try to resist it and i think that a lot of what the preservationist is is trying to do and struggling with is at the end of the day it's it's a story about climate change and about climate destruction and she's she's working and working to try to keep this victorian house going for the sake of her master who is seems almost indifferent to it but forces her to work on it so she sees herself as this worker ant that's being corrupted and like being overrun with moss and overwritten but it's it's about like at the end of the day it's we can understand our place in the world by just learning to accept this kind of decay rather than think of it as this kind of destructive inevitable uh, bleakness and i think rather than if you learn to like accept that and you like understand that like the natural world has its own structure and it has its own agency um rather than fighting it i think that we do have a kind of way forward and that last image just the the spine the rebuilding the spine of the world through humans climbing on each other's shoulders and reaching out to space is just so evocative and i think that even though it's it's kind of this grim story. There's like a, an element of hope in that last image. And there's that, that we, you know, by sitting on each other's shoulders and like reaching up that we're like, we are, we're like touching the cosmos regardless of what we build and whether it lasts or not. And it has a lot. And I, I'm, it really means a lot to me. And the more, like, like you said, it, the more you reread it, the, the richer it gets. And I, for me, it's definitely just facing the, the, the scary threat of climate change and trying to find meaning in that. Absolutely. Yeah. It's interesting how you said there was, uh, we can't fight decay or the natural world has, has its own agencies. Very similar to just, you know, we look at life as a structure. That's what the decay in the story was for me. It was, it was a story of life and death and the cycle of it. And mm-hmm. end of it, it was the moment where kind of hits you that humanity is all interconnected and interwoven the same way that Amanda happened to thread all these various subplots, sub narratives, and all these elements together. So I story was very powerful and impactful in definitely illustrating that, that the, the very serious issue of climate change and 
really highlighting the different structures that basically revolve around humanity. So, mm -hmm. yeah, thank you very much, John, for coming on to the show. Great reading, great talk, and uh, yeah, it was great. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Mike. Yeah, have pleasure to be here. Awesome. All right. That was John Crostek reading and discussing Chrysalis by Amanda Debershman from our Structures issue, published in March 2020, with cover by Liana Moxley. You've been listening to Deep Overstock Fiction Podcast. Our theme music is the song Take Me Higher by Jazzar. Join us again in two weeks, and don't forget to submit for our next issue, Animals, for November 30th. Visit deepoverstock.com slash submissions for specific guidelines.